NASA has been on the world stage for over 60 years, with incredible successes like the moon landings, and awful tragedies like Challenger and Columbia. And of course, many leadership lessons along the way. On this episode, astronaut Dave Williams on some of the key insights from his research on leadership at NASA. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 543. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. There is so much to be learned about leadership and, of course, about humanity by looking back. History informs us in so many ways and helps us to become better leaders. Today, a look at one of the most iconic organizations in our life, certainly my lifetime and in the lifetime of many of you listening, and what we can learn from NASA, an organization that's had so many spectacular successes and also, of course, a number of failures over the years, the leadership lessons that we can discover. I'm so glad to welcome today Dave Williams. Dave is an astronaut, aquanaut, jet pilot, emergency physician, scientist, CEO, and best-selling author. He is the former director of space and life sciences at NASA's Johnson Space Center and has flown into space twice on space shuttles Columbia and Endeavour. He holds the Canadian spacewalking record and was the first Canadian to live on the world's only undersea research habitat. He is the recipient of six honorary degrees, the Order of Canada, and the Order of Ontario. He is the author, with Elizabeth Howell, of Leadership Moments from NASA, Achieving the Impossible. Dave, such a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm absolutely thrilled to be able to talk to you about some of the leadership challenges that NASA's had and some of the fantastic leadership moments that enabled it to achieve the impossible. I enjoyed the book so much. I've been a space geek almost my entire life, and so I just loved reading about the stories uh, that you you researched in the book, and clearly a lot of work went into this book. And I'm I'm curious, before we get into some of the lessons, what motivated Elizabeth and you to do the research and to get this out into the world? Well, it came from a conversation that started when I wrote the foreword for one of Elizabeth's books called Canada Arm in Collaboration. And after uh, my input to that book, we were chatting and she had an idea about doing a book on space medicine, which we're actually working on right now. And then I said, well, I've got an idea for a book on leadership at NASA. So we shared our stories. We went to the publisher and said, what do you think about these two ideas? They were very excited at ECW Press about uh, bringing this book to reality. And it was a lot of fun. It was a tremendous honor, in fact, for me as a former NASA senior executive to be able to speak to former NASA administrators and some of the flight uh, controllers that were involved in moments like Apollo 13. It was just amazing. One of the key lessons that comes up throughout the book, and you mention it in the afterword in detail, is the value of introspection in leadership. And there's there's so many places that that comes up in NASA's history. But I'm actually really interested in a bit of your story around this. And you, of course, went to space twice and did a ton of training for the missions, but also for the spacewalks that you did. And you share a story in the book about some early spacewalk training and 
technically achieving the goals, but not quite getting there as far as a team. And I'm wondering if you could share a bit about what you learned early on in training for spacewalks. You know, one of the things NASA does really well that we talk about in the book is developing peak performing teams. And it's about leadership, followership, and working together to achieve complex objectives. For my spacewalks that we did on the International Space Station, we had just been brought together as a crew. There was Rick Mastracchio, one of the NASA astronauts that was going to be going outside doing a spacewalk with me, and Tracy Caldwell, another NASA astronaut who was metaphorically what you might call the orchestra conductor of the spacewalk. And this was our first time coming together as a crew, the first time that we were doing our spacewalk training. They put us underwater in the world's largest indoor swimming pool, this neutral buoyancy laboratory we used to train to do spacewalks. And Rick and I thought we were doing a spectacular job. Rick was off doing his thing. I was off doing my thing. We get out of the water six and a half hours later, we come up to the debriefing room and the instructor who is uh, monitoring everything that went on during the whole training session sort of smiled and says, so Dave, Rick, how did you guys think it went? And of course we debrief and say, well, we thought it went really, really well. And then he smiled and turned to Tracy and said, well, Tracy, what's your perspective? And Tracy was fantastic. She said, you know, guys, if we do in space, what we did today, it's not going to work. And both Rick and I were kind of surprised. It was, well, what do you mean? We did all the objectives. She said, well, Dave, you know, you went out the airlock and you were doing your thing. You didn't let me know when you were starting a procedure. And Rick, you were off in some work site working on a procedure when I was trying to work with Dave. And it was learning how to come together as a team. That was what Tracy was calling us out on. Yes, technically, what Rick and I had done was fine. But from a team perspective, it was not okay. And that was the beginning of our coming together as a fantastic team. When we ultimately did the spacewalks in uh, on STS-118, uh, building the space station, everything worked out flawlessly because we came together as a group. When you think about your mindset about teamwork from that very first uh, training exercise in the swimming pool to when you were actually on the shuttle doing the actual walk, what was most different about your mindset? You know, when we came together in the beginning, we were very focused on the technical objectives, which is why Rick and I were just, when we went out the simulated hatch and started doing these tasks, we focused on the task. In fact, by the time we got to do this in space, the objective was there, but it was working together as a team. And we had come together. Uh, it was just fantastic the way in which we were able to work as a group. And one of the lessons that I learned was not only the importance of speaking up, creating an environment where people feel that there's a high level of trust and you can say what needs to be said, but also listening up. And that was one of the things that Rick and I learned when Tracy was spoke up in the beginning saying, you know, this isn't going to work if we keep doing it this way. You've got to do it differently. We need to work as a team. And she was totally correct. One of the things that is really interesting to me is just the the way, uh, and I'm sure many astronauts do this, but I was really struck by just thinking through so many of the scenarios and being really introspective just about your own limitations as a human being. And you practice this as far as looking at sleep deprivation. And one of the things that you did in training was you would intentionally sleep deprive yourself and then do training in order to see how that affected your reactions and your thinking when you were actually going through the process. And you discovered some interesting things along the way and it ended up paying off. 
<laughs> it did. You know, it's funny. It was not on our training syllabus to train when you were quite tired. But uh, my primary career, I used to work as an emergency physician. And I know what can happen to performance when you're working 12-hour shifts overnight. And it's 4 o'clock in the morning. And you're wondering, gee, why am I not as sharp as I am at 4 o'clock in the afternoon with a good night's sleep? So I intentionally stayed up late a couple of times before training sessions. And I got into the, the NBL doing the training with Tracy and Rick and realized that, oh my goodness, doing uh, an EVA or a spacewalk when you're really tired is a totally different thing than doing it when you're wide awake and well-rested, primarily because spacewalking is all about focus. You relentlessly have to focus on the tasks that you're doing. And I learned how to do that when I was tired. That was so critically important. I never thought I'd use the training, to be honest with you. I just thought that it was important to do. And then on my first spacewalk in space, when Rick and I were about to do this for real, the, uh, there was an alarm that went off on the International Space Station that woke us both up four hours into our sleep period. And then we had to solve the problem with the alarm and then get back to sleep, realizing that we're about to go at the hatch in a couple hours and do a spacewalk and we're not going to be doing it well rested. So interestingly enough, that self-imposed training that I experienced really did help out for me on that first spacewalk. You said something a moment ago that is also a really key theme in the book, and it strikes me also is a really key value of NASA, the value of speaking up and the value of listening up. And there's so many echoes of this in NASA's history. And of course, there's some, some failures as well. I was particularly captivated by a story, though, that I think most people haven't heard. I, I, don't, I don't recall it. From the launch of Apollo 12, which was the mission right after the the mission all of us know of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landing on the moon. But the immediate the immediate mission after that, at launch, there was there was quite an interesting situation that happened. And the quick thinking of a man named John Aaron really saved the day in a big way. And I'm wondering if you could share a bit of that story, what happened and what led up to John's intervention that that helped so much. Yes. Well, shortly after liftoff, the vehicle was struck by lightning. And uh, needless to say, that was uh, that got everybody's attention. And uh, all the electrical equipment dropped offline because of the, uh, the sudden surge, the electrical surge. So fortunately, ahead of time, John Aaron had uh, worked on this issue with the engineering team. He'd observed this situation in the simulator and basically asked a whole lot of questions and learned about this. So for real, when this happened to Apollo, 12, they actually knew what to do. And one of the Apollo crew members was able to respond right away, flip the switch, and they brought everything back up. But you can imagine what that would be like. Ascent phase of flight, when the main engines of whatever vehicle you're on are firing, it's not a time for things to drop offline. So it was an incredible lesson that reinforced NASA's experience in training like you fly and flying like you train. It's the preparation that we do ahead of time that enables us to achieve these objectives. And it's really interesting that his really curiosity of, again, it, was, it wasn't something that was necessarily in the procedures, but his curiosity of noticing how the computers were reacting during one of the training things led him down this path of figuring, oh, you know, if this kind of thing ever happened. And the really fascinating part of the story for me, too, is in the moment that he recommends as the as the rocket is going up into space. He recommends to the flight director, let's try this. And they have no idea what he's talking about, do they? 
Yeah, they don't. And to me, that's a real test of whether you're working in a high trust organization or a low trust organization. In high trust organizations, you can make a call like that. Other people may not understand the rationale behind the call right away. They don't question why you're recommending it. They simply act on that information because of the competency that the individuals bring to the table. And that's something that, again, you can find uh, throughout NASA's history, this relentless commitment to being tough and competent that Gene Kranz talked about after the tragic loss of the Apollo 1 crew. And uh, I think that's something that played huge dividends in Apollo 12 and and also some of the other uh, Apollo missions as well. You uh, mentioned in the book a comment by Bill Gerstenmeier. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right, but uh, he says, I think sometimes we remember the things that went really bad, but then we don't remember some of the things that went really well. And uh, certainly we all remember the tragedies, but it is easy to forget that there, there's so much incredible success and accomplishment that came out of NASA's history and it's moments like that, that value of speaking up and listening, that trust, that really seems to permeate every part of the culture. And all the way from what Tracy told you in that first training exercise, all the way back to what John Aaron did you know, a generation ago, that that kind of communication is not only valued, it's expected at NASA. Yeah, there's no question. In fact, if you don't speak up, you'll be uh, given feedback that you probably should be speaking up more often. You know, when I was a hospital CEO, I met with my senior team and I said, I, I don't expect everybody will agree with me at all times. And in fact, I value discussion, dialogue, discourse and disagreement because that's how we can get the best possible outcome in a situation. But it takes time to build that trust. And you think about how many organizations people work in, we're all on our leadership journeys and the email that fills our inbox every Every day and the number of BCCs and CCs that are kind of out there, you kind of wonder, is that how people are protecting themselves in a low trust organization? So it's really all about creating high trust organizations through competency, building teams continuously and creating an environment where people do feel valued and trusted when they speak up. And it's OK to disagree, particularly with the CEO. You know, for me as a CEO, if you disagree with me, I'm going to say thank you. I value your perspective, not you're fired and uh, you know get out of here. Yeah, and and yet so many organizations that not that's not necessarily the default response, right? And I'm thinking about all the situations you've seen both as CEO and as astronaut where you inevitably ran into some times where it became apparent someone hadn't spoken up or someone hadn't listened up. When you've run into those times, Dave, what have you found has been helpful to say? in those moments that not only help that person have a little bit more trust to say something, but then the next time would be more likely that they would open that door. You know, George Abbey was uh, an outstanding leader in this regard when he was center director at Johnson Space Center. He would actually reward you uh, with all of his body language, with his mannerisms, with what he was saying. He would reward you if you kind of brought 
challenges and discuss those challenges. Whereas many other senior leaders, they don't want to hear about what's not working. They just want to hear what's working. So you end up in a situation where people in the organization feel when you go meet with the leader, you need to tell them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. And there's a huge difference between those things. For me as a leader, I always want to hear what I need to hear. I don't want to have any surprises. And that to be able to do that, you have to create that high trust environment and thank people for bringing the tough challenges because identifying the tough challenges, you can solve them before they get even harder. George Abbey in particular really uh, strikes me as such an extraordinarily extraordinary leader. And I didn't really know much about him at all before reading the book. You had the privilege of, of working with him a bit. What did he do with his body language that signaled to you and others that he was really ready and willing to hear things? He would always take notes. And uh, so if you were talking to him about mundane things, everything that was going well and just, you know, the regular report, he'd be looking down at the pad of paper and writing notes. As soon as you mentioned something that wasn't going the way you would hoped, he would immediately stop writing, sit up and look you straight in the eye and he would you would have this engaged conversation. Huh. Yeah actually didn't have to write things down because he has a memory unbelievable. What's really interesting is as senior leader is you go and you meet with Mr. Abbey and you find out that he knows more about your organization than you do sometimes. <laughs> so it was a challenge to make sure that you were well prepared. But you know, he, uh, through his physical body language and then through the questions he would ask, he was very interested in that. And I suspect he learned that from George Lowe, who was an incredible leader at NASA in the 1960s, who really was instrumental in uh, helping NASA recover from the loss of the Apollo 1 crew in the tragic fire at the Cape, getting back to flying in space. And without those missions, they never would have achieved Apollo 11 and the landing on the moon in 1969. So many leaders espouse the value of speaking up, and yet I think you know, it's really interesting. It's really, of course, what you do in the moment, not just what you espouse. And I, I think it's really fascinating thinking about how might I, as a leader, change my facial expressions, change my body language, make eye contact at the moments that I'm hearing something that maybe isn't what I necessarily want to hear, but makes the invitation to you and to others to actually let's lean in on this so we find out what's going on. I mean, it's really an extraordinary thought to think about it that way. I think that's why introspection is so important. You know, in, in my leadership journey, I see myself as somebody that's working with peak performing teams, trying to take organizations in a certain direction. You know, I'm very much a visionary leader. And I think it's important to be introspective and think about, well, did I communicate that effectively? Am I listening to my team? What could I do differently? Are they bringing me the problems that I want to hear about? And getting down into the organization. So when I was the CEO of a hospital, I would go out there and, you know, late at night, 11 o'clock at night, and I'd shadow a nurse or our pharmacy team. And you learn a lot about the organization simply by being in the organization and making yourself available to be able to listen to all the team members. And uh, anybody that's part of the team is a valued member of the team, and it's great creating an opportunity to listen to their feedback. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because there's a number of really positive examples in the book and some of the senior leaders at NASA doing that with great effectiveness, where they would go in late at night or they would go in and talk to the folks in launch control and they would you know, skip down many levels in the organization. And I, I know a lot of leaders feel 
a bit discomfort sometimes in doing that. They feel like, oh, I'm going to really, um, I'm going to throw my management team under the bus if I go talk to people. Um, and and they're not quite sure how to do that. And And I'm curious, not only how you made that work, but what you learned watching and researching some of the um, the, the leaders at NASA and how they made that work of, of talking at all levels of the organization? So I think it's about keeping the lines of communication open and actually enhancing the lines of communication through availability. George Lowe did that in the 1960s. He was infamous for walking around Johnson Space Center, talking to the teams. He would talk to the team in mission control, and he would go out and talk to the contractors' teams uh, before he actually met with the senior executives and the contractors, which is really quite interesting because in some cases, he would know more about what's actually happening with the contractor workforce than the senior team members and the contractors would. But George Abbey emulated that behavior. And I think it's it's something that's really profound, especially if you have a senior executive like Mr. Abbey or, or Glenn Lowe, they, they turn up, or George Lowe, I should say, turn up in mission control at you know, midnight. Everybody else is at home. The center's, uh, there's nobody there. And now all of a sudden you've got the center director sitting in mission control just watching. Well, not only does it say that senior leadership is committed to the goals of the organization, they want to be involved and they're operationally aware and they're operationally focused. And that's not specific to NASA. That works in any organization. And, you know, we found that out with my senior team in the hospital. Often we would go around as a group and meet with frontline team members to find out what's going on, what the challenges are, and how we can help them fix it. How did you navigate doing that? And at the same time, keeping the trust with the executive and senior leadership team without them feeling like, oh gosh, you know, (laughs) Dave's checking up on us. He's maybe trying to throw us under the bus. I I know a lot of people have fear about that. Did you find something that worked? Well, you know, it's natural if people have fear about that, but I think the way to deal with that is to embed this as part of the culture in the organization. You know, typically, if you look at the org chart, it's a pyramidal org chart, and there's nothing stopping middle-level leaders and uh, other senior leaders from doing their own walkabouts and getting a chance to chat with the team. So I would simply say, you know, this is what I have found in the conversations, and what do you guys think? What's your perspective? You're not trying to trap anybody. That's the key in all this. We're simply trying to create teams that are performing at their best, and the best way to do that is through open and transparent communication. Mm, huge. This actually is a great lead into one of the other big themes in the book, which is, and you make this invitation in the afterward, a movement away from us thinking about leadership as this single heroic leader, which I think traditionally is the mindset that a lot of us had a generation ago, and towards leadership, followership, and teamwork. And I I can't think of a better example of this than with what happened with the birth of the International Space Station. I think most people would say that the ISS has been an extraordinary success. Even people who don't know about space, uh, you know, they they know that there's astronauts up there now uh, doing work, and yet it it didn't start that way, did it? I mean, there was a there was a a project called Freedom that didn't go the way folks were we're planning it to go. And I'm wondering if maybe you could walk us through what was freedom? Uh, wh- why didn't it work? And, and how did that set up what came next with the International Space Station? Yeah. So Space Station Freedom was a project uh, envisioned by President Reagan in the 1980s. Uh, it was 
arguably a, a fantastic project that envisioned international collaboration, building a space station in space. However, like many projects, these things develop a life of their own. And it, sometimes it seems the larger the project and the larger the budget, the greater everything kind of gets uh, bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden you're behind schedule and over budget and the whole thing's beginning to fall apart. And arguably that's what happened with Freedom. By the time we were into the early 1990s, the project was significantly behind schedule, grossly over budget, and it was at risk of being canceled. So Dan Golden came in as the NASA administrator and and then with the transition in the presidency to Bill Clinton, the Clinton administration decided to retain Dan Golden because he'd been really working hard to kind of change NASA headquarters and get rid of some of the more bureaucratic processes and things and make the agency more streamlined with the famous faster, better, cheaper approach. But uh, anyway, with regard to the space station, uh, it was one Friday afternoon and I think Dan was up on the hill and he kind of got wind of the fact that you know, the project is going to be canceled. And oh, by the way, we'll give you the weekend to see if you can come up with a more cost effective solution. So, you know, most of us would kind of go away on a Friday afternoon, shrugging our shoulders and saying it's all over. And uh, that's going to be the end of the space station project, but uh, not Dan Golden. He got on the phone to George Abbey and they very quickly contacted uh, General Tom Stafford, who was one of the astronauts in the Apollo Soyuz test project, one of the Apollo astronauts. And they basically brought together a group for this weekend in Reston, Virginia, Tom Stafford's place, and they planned out a new vision for a space station that would be modular in design, much more cost effective, involve international partners. And Dan Golden brought that back on Monday, uh, presented it on the Hill, and the project was approved. But, you know, I think few of us would realize that the whole future of the human spaceflight program was going to be decided in a one weekend meeting with a few folks in the room coming up with an appropriate recommendation on how to save uh, resources. And arguably, without the International Space Station, the space shuttle wouldn't have had the same mission that it did helping build the space station. And I think really the future of human space travel would have been in jeopardy. So it was a remarkable story. And we take it for granted now, the International Space Station. And I'm thinking back to what the quote I mentioned earlier of like, we remember the things that went bad, but we don't remember some of the things that went really well. And, you know, had that project not moved forward, I mean, it really would have changed the course of space exploration for the last generation um, if we were doing it at all. And it, it's really interesting to think that it it really came down to a group of people for 48 hours on a weekend coming together and saying, how are we going to do this? And bringing that back to the Clinton administration and Congress. And one of the things that I sense from your research of this weekend and, and how this went down is that a big part of it was getting the right people in the room. Am I, am I hearing you right on that and, and putting together some of the details? Yeah, there's absolutely no question. It's uh, both about who's in the room and who's not in the room. You know, Dan Golden reached out to George Abbey and asked George for his recommendation on who should be in the room. And they had Tom Shea, uh, an absolutely outstanding NASA engineer, Max Faget, another incredible engineer, Mike Mott, who is involved in the synthesis group, George Abbey, of course, and John Young, who is famous for having flown in the Mercury, or sorry, in the Gemini program in Apollo, and then also being the commander of the first space shuttle mission. So it was a small group 
of incredibly talented, insightful individuals. And I think that's what made the difference. If you had had a group of 50, it wouldn't have happened. There would have been so much disagreement that people could not have achieved consensus. And Dan Golden was absolutely fantastic in listening to the recommendations, embracing the recommendations and bringing them back. But, you know, it comes back to that introspective aspect of, of leadership is kind of always thinking about how things succeed, why they succeed, not just focusing on why things didn't work, which is often what people tend to do, but that daily debrief with oneself as a leader asking the question, hey, what's working and why is it working and maybe what's not working and how can we change that and why is it not working? Yeah, it's really an extraordinary example of it. And uh, and to your to underscore your point, I mean, Freedom had been years in the making, so many people, organizations involved, and here a small team comes together and actually architects something that ends up being uh, better and sustainable and more cost-effective. And I, I'm thinking about that from a leadership standpoint. I'm you know, Sometimes that happens, right? Like you, you have 48 hours and you need to get together a couple of people who are going to be the right people. When you've had moments like that, Dave, in your work and are thinking about who do I pull onto a team last minute for something that we need to make a decision on, get creative on, how do you think about who gets pulled into that conversation? Well, I was very fortunate to learn about that from George Abbey because, you know, working for George, I'd heard this story and then I was able to interview him for the book. So I learned even more. But I think it starts with the organization and building an organization where everybody is highly competent and you're continually building the competency of individuals as a learning organization and building the competency of the organization. So for myself, you know, if I was confronted with a situation like that, I would want to get the key individuals bring them in based on their technical competencies and also their behavioral skills or behavioral competencies in being team players and uh, making sure that you're not creating a team that's too big, but you've got the right people in the room to be able to deal with the issue. At NASA, we call those tiger teams. And we talk about that in the book. You know, tiger teams are valuable, not just in NASA, they're valuable across many organizations. Yeah, it's really... uh... It's really extraordinary, like how much that practice has become a part of the culture and open up so many doors and technology and science and 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 human success. It's just incredible. There's so much in this book. I mean, we're just scratching the surface for uh, for those who, like me, are uh, a bit of space geeks and would like to dive in more. I would certainly invite you to uh, to spend some time with the book Leadership Moments from NASA. Just such a hey, such a comprehensive look at an organization that, and I think what's really interesting about NASA, Dave, is that it's public, right? I mean, it's government funded, it reports to Congress, taxpayers uh, support NASA. And so we see so much more in public from NASA that we may not see from other organizations. And it's so complex. There's so many stakeholders. You can't go to space alone. No single organization can do that. Of course, NASA has amazing partnerships with so many contractors. And it's so high stakes, too. If there's a mistake, it, it's something that potentially affects the lives of so many people and the trajectory of human, human spaceflight exploration. So I, I think that's why NASA is such a fascinating case study for this. And I'd invite uh, uh, everyone to, to dive in more. Dave, before I let you go, I, I'm curious, as you've done your research for this book, as you and Elizabeth have conducted these interviews and talked to so many of the people who were involved in NASA's successes and failures over the years. I'm curious, what 
have you changed your mind on in going through that process? You know, it was an interesting journey. And uh, looking back at the journey, I, I think we really focused on organizational leadership, not so much on operational leadership, which is a whole other discussion. You know, when we're working on as a crew in space, how do we work together to be able to succeed? What are the lessons that we learn in creating these peak performing teams? So I, I almost think there's another book out there on operational leadership and certainly on teamwork. One of the things that's so unique at NASA is this concept of followership, which arguably they got from the National Outdoor Leadership School recently for astronauts. But people like George Lowe in the 1960s would promote what is now known as followership, getting people in the organization to speak up, to be able to contribute, to be part of this dynamic decision-making. And, you know, if you think about things like Apollo 8, where the decision was made uh, literally in six months at the end of 1968, instead of just orbiting the Earth with the command service module, sending that to the moon and getting those first images of an Earth rise across the moon's horizon, that was George Lowe that made that happen. And George Abbey was his assistant at the time. The whole NASA team resonated with that. And that's an amazing story. Dave Williams is the author with Elizabeth Howell of Leadership Moments from NASA, Achieving the Impossible. Dave, thanks so much for your time and your work. Oh, thanks so much for having me. If this conversation was of interest to you, several others I'd recommend. One of them is episode 149, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. My guest on that episode was Chris Hatfield, also a NASA astronaut, former commander of the International Space Station. In that conversation, Chris and I talked about his book of the same name and some of the key lessons he's learned in his career as an astronaut and, more importantly, how those lessons are applicable for all of us, especially as we continue our careers and we transition transition into different roles. A lot of insight there that I still think about regularly from episode 149. Uh, check that out. Also recommended is episode 229, Leadership Lessons from Space Shuttle Challenger. Alan McDonald was my guest on that episode. You heard Dave talk in this conversation about the value of speaking up, and boy, did Al speak up both before and after the Challenger accident in 1986. Uh, he was involved in the decision-making both before and after the launch and was the one person who refused to sign for Challenger's launch. You'll hear his story on episode 229. If you haven't heard that before, it's a powerful conversation. And sadly, Al passed away earlier this year. So if you didn't get to hear that originally, I'd strongly recommend it. Uh, he's definitely a part of American history and NASA's history as well. Episode 229 for that. And then finally, uh, Dave talks uh, and references Edgar Schein quite a bit in the book because, of course, about culture. NASA is, uh, NASA's culture has helped and supported so many successes. Of course, it's been a part of some of the failures as well. And uh, last time uh, Edgar Schein was on the show was just last month, episode 539. Ed and his son Peter were on teaching us about the path towards trusting relationships. A uh, great compliment to this conversation as well. And of course, so much a part of NASA's culture also. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website website. And if you haven't yet, I'd encourage you to set up your free membership on coachingforleaders.com that will give you access to the entire library of episodes since 2011. Easy to search by topic. Plus, you get access to my notes, just like this conversation with Dave, plus all of my notes from all the interviews in the past few years, uh, highlights, 
access to my own personal library, our member cast, and of course, access to the weekly leadership guide that comes in your inbox each week with details on the principles from each episode, but also many of the other resources I've been finding for you. You can get easy access to all of that just by going over to coachingforleaders.com, setting up your free membership, and you'll be right along with us in being able to access all of those resources. Join me next Monday for our next conversation. It is going to be with Johnny Taylor Jr. He is the president and CEO of SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management, and his invitation to us next week is going to be to start finding overlooked talent, a huge challenge in many organizations right now. Join me for that conversation next week with Johnny. Have a great week and take care.